we're going to talk about the king behind the mission, so the mission that he's given us, so the king behind the mission, the mission itself, and then the missionaries. And so we'll be in two texts this morning. One is in Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, and then our second text will be Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. So I'm going to read them here at the front end, and then we'll pray, and then we'll jump in. So we'll start in Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. It says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And then Mark 6, starting in verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them, send them away to go into the country, surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded, them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of fifties, hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." So when I was a kid, um, my family owned a restaurant called the White Leghorn. Okay, it was a Leghorn, but we said the Leghorn, and um, it was down in South Texas, and it was a pretty country place. Um, my mom was a waitress. My brother and sister-in-law, uh, or my, yeah, my my sister and my brother-in-law were cooks. Family would come in and out of there all the time to work. And one time, I'll never forget it. Nolan Ryan walked in. Okay, which was a big deal because this was in the middle of nowhere, right? Nolan Ryan walks in, and um, everyone's taking pictures with him. I mean, like, people are flocking to him. He's signing autographs. I mean, it's, it's a party, right? And so if you don't know who Nolan Ryan is, I'm sorry for your life and what, how you've lived it. Um, but Nolan Ryan is one of the greatest baseball players to ever play baseball. At this point in his career, I mean, he was, this was mid-90s, early 90s, and so uh, he was really good. He played for the Texas Rangers and Houston Astros and a few other teams, and he was awesome. And so he walks in, and it's a party, okay? Now, my mom was his waitress, and so I got the privilege of going to get my little Nolan Ryan baseball card. I had two binders when I was a kid that were precious to me. One was a binder full of baseball cards and a binder full of Pokemon cards, right? And so um, I went back and got my binder full of baseball cards, 
And I grabbed Nolan Ryan's card, and I went over to my mom. My mom was going to take his order. And I'll never forget, I sit there and I go, Mr. Ryan, can I have your autograph? And he looked at me, and he goes, yes, you can have my autograph if you get me a glass of water. And I was like, what? Did Nolan Ryan just ask me to get him a glass of water? Because here's the deal. I had gotten a glass of water for somebody or myself tons of times at this point in my little life. I knew how to get a glass of water, but all of a sudden I forgot, right? Like I forgot how to get a glass of water. And I had to think through every single moment strategically, right? And remind myself how to get a glass of water. And so I went over to the cups and was like, okay, I need a cup. Um, And so I found the perfect cup. Like there was no smudges, there was no cracks, there was no chips in this cup. I um, got the ice and I poured the perfect amount of ice. And you know what the perfect amount of ice, right? Like it's not too much to where it gets watered down really quick, but it's not too little to where it's like, is this even cold? Like what's happening here? Um, And then I poured the perfect amount of water so that whenever he like lifted his hands up to drink it, it didn't fall over his perfect shirt and his arm and hurt. And like, what if I hurt Nolan Ryan? Like what, what happened, Nolan? Well, this kid was getting me a glass of water and he broke my arm, right? And so I was very careful about this glass of water. So I grabbed the cup and I watched every single step that I took back to the table, made sure I didn't spill a drop of that water. And I got to Nolan Ryan and I said, Mr. Ryan, here's your water, right? And that is the proudest moment of my entire life, okay? Like, like I've never done anything better. Like, I'm married to a beautiful woman, but Nolan Ryan, like, I successfully got him a glass of water. Um, now, here's the deal. Why do I tell you that story? Because it was just a glass of water. It was ordinary. People do it every single day. What made it significant for me is that it was for Nolan Ryan, right? And for us, I think in the church, we forget when we talk about all the, like you come to church and you hear all the stuff that God is asking us to do and the preacher says that you got to do this and you got to do this. I think we forget who we're doing it for. The God of the universe, like who has all power and all authority. And, And not only that, but has come down from heaven and put on human flesh and died for our sins, this is the God that we serve. And I think we forget that. And so the mission that he's given us, it may seem ordinary, but when we really realize who it is that's giving us this mission, it matters, right? Because we can get so focused on the busyness of church and the busyness of the mission, but when we realize that it's God giving us the mission, the mission is so much more significant. And so I'm going to show you two moments, one to kind of as a backdrop uh, for our second story, but we're going to look at just a marvelous king, and then we're going to look at the mission, and then we're going to look at our role in that mission. And so we'll start in Matthew 8. I won't read the whole text again, but the disciples are in a boat, the waves are crashing in, the wind's blowing, the boat's filling up with water, and the disciples think they're going to die, so they do what we would do. They call out for help. They ask Jesus for help, and he scolds them, right? He, he pushes back at them. And so what does Jesus do in this moment when everything's falling apart and they're terrified? He does what you or I would do. He stands up and begins to talk to the winds and the waves, right? Um, No, we don't do that. He stands up and think about, really think about this. He begins to rebuke the wind. And we get the same moment in Mark chapter four, and there he says, peace, be quiet. Now in the, the language that the Bible has written, Um, Those are the same word, but said two different ways. It's the word silence. And so in the first one, he uses the present tense, which means now, be quiet now. And then the second one, he uses the perfect tense, 
which means continue to be quiet. So he says, be quiet and stay quiet. Think about this. He talks, the God that has given us the mission, talks to the winds and the waves as if it's a child. Right? Have you ever been on, um, on a lake or in the ocean when there's a storm? The waves are choppy, right? And then you kind of come out of that storm. What happens? The waves are still choppy. But here it says, when he gives, the na- when he gives nature that command, everything stops. There's a great calm. That's power. That's authority. And here's the disciples' response to that. It says that they marveled. That they marveled. What sort of man is this that can even control the winds and the waves? And so before we even talk about what you have to do, like what the church needs to do, the question that we have to answer is, when is the last time that you simply marveled at who Jesus is? the last time that you were truly captivated by your king, that you weren't so worried about what you have to do and what you didn't do, and and I I can't believe I did this, or I can't believe I didn't do this, but you just stopped, and you were just in awe of Jesus. Can you remember? Because that's where mission begins. I think that there are a lot of people in churches, um, because I was a college minister for a long time, and I saw this a lot. There would be a lot of students who would come to our church, and they were just bored with church. Like, they were bored. Faith wasn't exciting to them. Singing songs wasn't exciting to them. Reading the Bible was a chore. Praying was a chore. Jesus was boring. They had completely lost whatever marvel they once had. And if we lose that as a church, that puts us down a dangerous road of being a Pharisee and religiosity and completely forgetting why we're doing what we're doing. And so let me ask you, are you bored? (laughs) Have you completely lost your marvel? Because we can't forget that he is God. Like He controls the winds and the waves with the word, silence. He has all authority over the grass, over every single molecule, over every single thing that has ever happened happen in every one of us. He has, not only is that, he's, he has control over our lives, and he has loved us so much that he would send his son to die on the cross. This is our God. And so the question is, man, have you, do you, do you marvel? Are you in awe of this Jesus? Because mission starts there. Mission begins with marvel. It's what launches us into it, and it's also what sustains us in the midst of it that we would look at our God and worship because he's worthy of it. And so the question is, okay, if that's the king behind the mission, what's the mission? Mark 6, uh, verse 30, you can turn over there. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Notice that it says the apostles returned. Okay, so apostles means sent one. So they are being sent out, and a little bit earlier in verse 7, um, the disciples go out two by two. Now, up to this point in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples had just been watching, right? They had been watching Jesus um, heal the sick. They had been watching him raise the um, paralyzed um, to walk. They, he had just, they had been kind of sitting on the sidelines watching. Um, they hadn't really done anything. But in verse 7, they're sent out, okay? So they get to partake in what Jesus is doing. And so in verse 30, they come back. 
And then in verse 31, it says this. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going. They had no leisure to even eat. So they're tired. They're exhausted. They've been teaching all day. Casting out demons would make us tired as well. Healing the sick. Like that's a lot of ministry to do in one day. And so um, they want to rest. But here's the deal. Um, Everyone wants a piece of them at this point. So in the next verse, you see that people begin to see them, and they begin to talk and say, hey, Jesus is over there. Like, did you guys see them? Did you guys see them? Did you guys see them? And people begin to gather and see where they're going, and they beat them to the spot. <laughs> like, like, Jesus and the disciples are the Jonas brothers walking through the mall. They're like, they're here, right? And so everyone begins to gather and beat them to the spot. And so it says in verse 34, um, it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So when they get ready to rest, when they want to rest, they realize that there is a massive group of people waiting for them. Now, if that were me or you and we had been working all day, we would be annoyed. Like, we're tired. We want to rest. And these people want something from us. But that's not how Jesus reacts. The text says that he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. You know, many times when um, I hear this, I used to hear this story, or maybe that's you this morning, you're like, oh, feeding of the 5,000? I know that story. And we think of it as like a joyful, happy, like picnic, kind of like a picnic we're having next week, where like there's blankets and they're smiling, and Jesus is just going, going around pulling bread out of his pocket going, you want some bread? You get some bread. You, you want some bread? You get some bread, right? Like, like there's unicorns and rainbows, and this is a happy moment, Right? I know that's how I used to think of this story, but the reality is that statement that he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd, it's actually a very heavy statement. This is actually a very intense moment. This is the only miracle that is, is in all four Gospels. Do you know that? That's how significant this story is. It's much more than a picnic. This is actually a very intense moment. Um, That statement is heavy because a shepherd is a metaphor all throughout the Bible of the leaders of Israel, of the leaders of the people of God. And he looks out at this crowd, okay? He looks out at this crowd and he understands that they have no leadership. And this moment is significant also because of the structure of Mark 6. Like, if you're like me, when you hear what the story is or what the pastor's preaching about that day, you read before and after, right? And so I don't know if you've noticed, but Mark 6 is laid out really strange, okay? It's really strange. In verse 7, it says that the disciples were sent out two by two, and they return in verse 30. But if you look in between those two stories, what is there? There's a really random story, what seems to be random, a story about King Herod and John the Baptist. Like, you think that verse 7 and verse 14 would be switched, Like, it would be King Herod and John the Baptist, and then the disciples get sent out, and then they return in verse 30. Like, that would make more sense. And so it's like, we have to ask the question, because nothing is put in the Bible by accident. It's all purposeful. We have to ask the question, why? Why is Mark 6 laid out that way? Like, King Herod and John the Baptist story isn't even chronologically where it needs to be. Like, this, it's not like Jesus and the disciples are having a picnic And meanwhile, this is happening. Like, no, no, no. King Herod and John the Baptist, that story happened much earlier. And so why is it there? Because it's a contrast. 
Mark wants to show us two kings, okay? Two shepherds, King Herod and Jesus. King Jesus, who is building a kingdom on healing the sick, feeding the poor, calling people from darkness into his kingdom, and King Herod, the current shepherd. And in those verses, verses 14 through 29, we learn some background on King Herod. His story starts with Herod asking his brother's wife to leave his brother and to marry him. And so she does. And John the Baptist responds by preaching. (laughs) Like he stands up to King Herod and says, hey, that's not right. You can't do that. And begins to preach the truth to Herod. And the Bible says that he's perplexed. Like Herod doesn't know what to do with that. He's confused because he likes listening to John teach. He he, He respects John, but he also knows that he wants to do what he wants to do. Like, he wants power. He wants self-satisfaction. So he respects him, but he's perplexed. And the text says that he gladly listened to him. It's interesting. Now, Herod's new wife now has a grudge against John the Baptist because, well, he's been preaching against King Herod, choosing to marry her. She doesn't like the things that he's telling his husband, so she begins to make a plan. And King Herod throws a lavish party, right? A big birthday party. Um, and his wife sees an opportunity to take advantage of Herod at this party. So Herod's wife's daughter begins to dance for Herod and all of his nobles, and in the midst of that, in a display of power, Herod says this to her, "'Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you.'" And he vowed to her, "'Whatever you ask, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom.'" The irony here, and this is interesting, um, he's not even a real king. Like, a king Herod isn't even a real king. His dad was king, King Herod the Great, but this is just Herod. This is Herod Antipas. When King Herod the Great died, um, he said, none of my children are fit to rule, so he split his kingdom up into forts. And so this isn't King Herod. Mark calls him king, ironically, because he wanted to be king. In fact, um, we know this from church history, much later he petitioned to Rome that they would make him king, and instead of making him king, they depose him. They get rid of him, right? And so King Herod, Herod Antipas, he wants to be important. He declares himself a king. When he's not, he builds a palace. He throws a lavish banquet. He invites his noble. And in this moment, he tries to display his power. And so this girl says, give me the head of John the Baptist. And even though Herod respects and likes John, it says that he called for the executioner immediately. And so you have this contrast between Herod and the true shepherd. So it's not in a palace, but in a field. Not at a lavish banquet, but with some bread and some fish. This language, when Jesus says that he had compassion on them uh, because they were sheep without a shepherd, that comes directly from Ezekiel 34. So let me read to you a few passages from Ezekiel 34, and I want you to listen to the language of it. And I want you to listen to the mission and then the fulfillment of that mission. Ezekiel 34, in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. It says this, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat, fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, 
The strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. And then verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, they have all been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep. And here's, I will rescue them. I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered and on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be priest among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. God is not interested in kings who are self-interested, kings who care about their own agenda and power. He will cast them aside. And here's what's interesting about Ezekiel 34, is that David died long before Ezekiel was ever born, right? If you look at the Old Testament. So when it says that David will be prince among them, what's he talking about? It can't be David. Who is it? Thank you. It's Jesus, right? It's the son of David. It's the Messiah. And so when Jesus walks up in this moment and he says he has compassion on them because they are sheep without a shepherd, this is Ezekiel 34. This is not a picnic. This is Ezekiel 34, Jesus coming in and saying, my sheep, they have no shepherd. And he's going to gather them. He's going to rescue them. His kingdom doesn't take it. Gives. For generations, the people of Israel had been telling stories about a Messiah, the, the son of David, who would come, and they were waiting for him. And what's interesting, in John, and John is they begin to realize who Jesus is, and it says by the end of it, they were going to take him by force and make him king. Like, they want to start a revolution. They want to grab their torches and their swords, and they want to take over Herod's palace. They want to take over the Roman government, and Jesus has to escape them. Did you know that? Like, they want to take him by force, and Jesus is like, no, because that's not his kingdom. He doesn't rule by violence or power. He has all the power and authority in the world, but he chooses to care and to love and to show kindness, to feed the poor, to heal the sick, to call people to repentance. And so he escapes them as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I'll rescue them. That's his mission, and that's our mission, that God has commissioned us to go make disciples of all nations and gather the sheep. He wants disciples, people that would love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates, people that would see him as marvelous and see him as our king. So if that's the mission, how are we going to accomplish it? Well, we get it in this story. Verse 35. It says, It grew late, and the disciples came to him and said, Hey, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the country, uh, countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So they've got this great crowd. Jesus has been teaching for hours. It's getting late, and the people are hungry. And if you notice here, the, the disciples are beginning to think like leaders, Right? They've been watching him for a long time. Jesus now has them do, and they assess a problem, and they bring a solution, right? 
Like, hey, Jesus, it's like, like, like if I was up here until two o'clock today, like I can see some of you yawning right now. About two hours from now, you're going to be throwing chairs at me. Someone's going to come up here and say, Colton, you got to end this. Like, look, you're on a roll. I know you're feeling the spirit, but you got to stop, right? Amen, brother, right? And so here, the disciples are like, Jesus, look, I know you're on a roll, dude, but like people are hungry. Kids are going crazy. Like you got to let them go. You got to let them go eat. And it's actually like, that's a good idea. <laughs> it's a really good suggestion. But look at what Jesus does. He turns their rational solution completely upside down. In verse 37, he says, he answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And he puts them in a situation where they feel completely helpless. And I can imagine that the disciples felt their inadequacy. Like, you mean us feed all these people? Like, you can feel their inadequacy. There is no way for them to come up with a solution to fix the issue at hand. And in fact, the disciples' response to Jesus is the most sarcastic they will ever be in any of the Gospels. They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? A denarii was a day's away. So 200 denarii, let's just throw out a number, $30,000, right? Six months of wages, $30,000. And so they're basically like, oh, so you want us to go get that $30,000 that we had laying around? When just before in verse 7, he had told them to not carry a money bag when they're sent out. So like, oh, you... You want me to get that 30000 Andrew, do you have $30,000? Bartholomew, do you have 30? John, no? Okay, Jesus, we don't have $30,000, right? You can sense the frustration in this moment. And here's the reality. I wonder in this room how many of us, when we think about all the things that we have to do, that God has asked us to do, to, to usher in his kingdom, to make disciples of all nations, the needs in our, not only in our neighborhood, and in our county, and in our state, and in our country, but around the globe. All the injustices of the world. Do we get a little overwhelmed? And do we feel a little inadequate? I think that we do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Panta, ta, ethnos. All the peoples. And we can begin to feel really inadequate because the reality is that he's placed you in a neighborhood. He's placed you in a school or in a workplace. You've seen the injustices around you. You've seen the things that have happened in your community. You've seen the things on the news. You've heard slavery still exists in the world today. Think about that. There are still orphans. The refugee crisis is the worst that it's ever been. There are people, 40%, over 40% of the world to this day has never heard the name of Jesus has never heard. Like, like, it's not like they saw a church on the corner and decided not to go. Like, no, no, no. They don't know a Christian. There is no church for them to go to. Over 40, over 3 billion people will never meet a Christian. It's highly probable that they will never meet a Christian in their life. And when we begin to think about these things, if you're like me, you begin to feel ill-equipped. Ill I don't have enough bread to feed these people, right? And here's the reality that in Africa, there are, think about this, there are 3,000 animistic tribes, 
tribes in Africa who are worshiping spirits that are not worthy to be worshipped. That in Japan and Laos and Vietnam, there are 250 million Buddhists who are worshiping God that is not worthy to be worshipped. That in India and Bangladesh, there are over 950 million Hindus who are worshipping a multitude of gods that are not worthy to be worshipped. And in the Middle East, there are 1.5 billion Muslims who are worshipping a God who is not worthy to be worshipped. And people in your neighborhood are lost. There is a lot to do. And so let me tell you what I do a lot of times, to my own fault. And I did this a lot when I was a college minister and a youth minister, is that I would look at the needs around me, and I would begin to come up with rational solutions. Like, God, here's what I'm capable of. Here's what I think I can do. And so, let me pray for this. Or let me make a program. Or let me do this. Like, like God, here's what I know that I can accomplish. And so, I begin to bring Jesus, find solutions that don't really reflect how marvelous he is, that we try to do the work of God without God. We try. That we come up with rational solutions to the need, to the need that's among us. We come up with fine solutions that don't really, really reflect his power, his authority, and his love. We say, hey, let's just send him away to get some food. But Jesus looks at the disciples here, and he says, no, you do it. Because the disciples want to do ministry. Like, their hearts are good here. They want to do ministry, but it's not the type of ministry that Jesus is interested in. Jesus is interested in the type of ministry that gives him glory. The type of ministry that seems impossible. And I wonder how many, you can take this on a church level, on a personal level. I wonder how many ministry programs are things that we've done that are, is a low vision. We've casted the bar really low because we're afraid of failing. We're afraid that we will not live up to what God has asked us. We're afraid because we don't know how to share our faith, or we feel inadequate in doing this, and so we set the bar really low to what God is asking of us, because we're afraid that we'll disappoint. But it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about him. And if you feel inadequate, good, because you are. But he's not. And that's the point. Jesus wants them to feel their inadequacy. So let me ask you a question. When you pray, are you praying for things that actually need to be prayed for? Are you praying for things that you can just do? <laughs> like, you, that you can just do. Like, those are good. I'm not saying don't pray for them. But, but when you pray, what do you pray for? Are you praying for things based on your own capabilities? Are you actually asking God to do something that you cannot do. And when you think about where God has called you, what God's asking you to do, is it something that you can just do? Or is it something that you really need faith for? You need God to show up. And you plead for him to show up. And it might seem a little risky, but I can imagine in this room there are some of you who God is asking much more of you than you're actually giving him. He's asking you to serve somewhere that you're not comfortable with. Like, for some of you, that may mean that you just need to go to a home group, because going to a home group terrifies you. Like, being in a room with other people and talking about things that you don't talk to anyone about, or that maybe you've been hurt in the past, and there's a fear there of trusting people again. Like, for some of you, God is asking you to be committed to a home group. And for some of you, and I'm completely serious about this, um, that I believe that there are people in this room that God is asking to change your address, that you would take your family, 
and you would move to a part of the world that has never heard the name of Jesus. But you have masked your life, and me too, this is me, we mask our lives with fine solutions. Where it's a good, it's not bad, it's good. We'll send them away to get food. But the question that we ought to ask ourselves is Jesus asking much more of us? He's asking much more of us. The vision for what God wants to do with his disciples here, and I believe with our church, goes far beyond rational thought. And Jesus does things that are irrational. <laughs> we do things that are rational, but he does things that are irrational. And they're incredible. We study God's words, we sing his songs, we're faithful to our jobs, we're faithful to our family. But is that just a fine solution? Like, is he asking much more of your family? Is he asking you to lead much deeper and much strategic, more strategically? Is he asking our church for much more? We need to pray about these things. And here's my favorite part of this story. In verse 38, he, says, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. They come to Jesus with very little. They feel inadequate. And when we think about what God can do in our church, in our community, the nations, we should feel inadequate because we are. But here's what they do. They bring him the bread and the fish. Like they don't go, oh, like John, how many, how many fish do you have? Bartholomew, how many fish do you have? Like, Dude, I got one. I got half. I got a tail, right? And they don't come together and go, we don't have enough. We can't feed everybody. And so, like, for, if that was me, like, if someone, if Katie sent me to go get 200 plates and I found 20, like, I probably just would run away. Like, I'd be like, I'm not going home with less than 200 plates. Like, like it wouldn't, like, I would be terrified to bring that to her. Not that she's mean or anything. She's very <laughs> gracious. Um, but the disciples, here's what they do. Jesus asked them to do something, go and see, and they do it. And they bring him. They say, Jesus, we've got five loaves and two fish. And can I give you some comfort? Jesus is not asking you to change the world. He's asking you to be obedient with what little you have, your little bank account, your little gifts, right? Your little time. He's not asking you to completely change the world. He is asking you to be obedient for whatever that looks like for you. And so the weight that you have on your shoulders that you're not performing enough, take it off. It does not belong there. You listen to the Spirit's call. You worship Him. You marvel at Him. And you believe with complete faith that He can do things that you cannot do. And you respond in obedience to whatever He's asking of you. For some of you, that's a home group. For some of you, that's fill in the blank. For some of you, that's moving overseas. I don't know what that is for you. But I can guarantee as you worship and you pursue in community, he will reveal that to you. And, and let me ask this. If they had just sent them away, like if Jesus would have said, okay, like send them away to get food. The story that we would have missed out on, can you imagine? The things that God is asking you to do, I plead with you to, in faith that you would follow them. And let me give you this last thing, this last bit of confidence as the band comes up. Um, this last bit of confidence. The mission that God has given us is guaranteed to succeed. Did you know that? 
the mission that God has given us is guaranteed to succeed. Like the weight of its success is not on us. <laughs> He's already guaranteed that it will succeed. Revelation 7, and let me finish with this. Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. It is guaranteed to succeed, that there will be a day when there is nothing but marvel left. That's all that will exist, is worship of the King.